Our passage this morning comes from Job chapter 14. We'll read the entire chapter, uh, verses 1 through 22. Uh, This is the final uh, uh, section of Job's uh, response to Zophar and, and uh, and, and his other friends. The latter part of chapter 13 and all of verse four, uh, chapter 14 make up his, uh, his address unto the Lord, his prayer, because this has been Job's habit to respond to the criticism, to respond to the uh, cruelty sometimes, the accusations, the, the poor counsel, uh, because misapplied counsel of his friends, and then to turn himself unto the one in which he hoped. The one that he knew, though uh, he received only tribulation from him at the moment, uh, that his hope lied to God himself. Uh, This this passage follows a a fairly fairly well-known sort of structure in in Hebrew. Actually, you find it in other languages, including our own as well. Uh, he, he starts one way and he brings to a focus and then he finishes it the way he began. Uh, sort, of a, a sort of a sandwich type uh, structure. So our focus this morning uh, will particularly be on verses 13 through 15. Uh, but before we look at them, we'll look at what comes before and comes after. But before I read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ Jesus, and we beseech that you would give your Holy Spirit today. Give the Holy Spirit that inspired this book of Job in the first place, that gave us these infallible words for our infallible instruction, for our correction and reproof, for our training, not just in righteousness, but our training in that great communion that we have in you in prayer. We ask, Father, that your spirit would dwell within our hearts this morning, that we might be receptive unto that instruction, that we might be given those uh, doctrines, that, that firm assurance that will, that will make us persevere uh, with you in the midst of all trials, looking unto you and your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the book of Job, chapter 14. Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. And dost thou open thy eyes upon such a one and bringest me into judgment with thee? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Seeing his days are determined... The number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Turn from him, that he may rest till he shall accomplish as a hireling his day. For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stalk thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud, and bring forth boughs like a plant. But man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? 
As the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decayeth and dryeth up, so man lieth down and riseth not, till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. O that thou wouldst hide me in the grave, that thou wouldst keep me secret until thy wrath be passed, that thou wouldst appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait, till my change come. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thy hands. Now thy number is my steps. Thou dost watch over my, dost thou not watch over my sin? My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou sowest up my iniquity. And surely the mountain failing cometh to naught, and the rock is removed out of his place. The waters wear the stones, thou washest away the things which grow out of the dust of the earth, and thou destroyest the hope of man. Thou prevailest forever against him, and he passeth. Thou changest his countenance, and sendeth him away. His sons come to honor, and he knoweth it not. And they are brought low, but he perceiveth it not of them. But his flesh upon him shall have pain, and his soul within him shall mourn. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Amen. We see here in Job's affliction that, that his heart is focused. His heart is focused, as he mentions in the very last verse, upon his self in many ways, but this flesh upon him shall have pain, and his soul within him shall mourn. Uh, that there is that sense in which whatever he believes, whatever he knows to be true, nevertheless, the, the affliction uh, breeds within him a certain dissatisfaction. Uh, he is, you know, in good times it's easy to see the good things of the world around us. But we have all had those slumps, we have all had dark days, we've all had, and particularly the older we are, the more serious they have been, in which we cannot look at the beauty of the creation, the beauty of the day, without seeing also the vanity that is involved in it. An affliction causes us to have a certain sort of dissatisfaction with the way things are. A dissatisfaction with the world around us. It heightens those things that are amiss. It creates, and one of the good things that it does create is a holy dissatisfaction. Uh, and by that I mean a dissatisfaction that is not born of, of, of covetousness, a dissatisfaction that is not born of envy, a dissatisfaction that is not born of, of, of greed or, or undue desire, but one rather that sees what is amiss and wrong and what ought not to be and longs for the day when things are made right and hopes for it. There's a certain sense in which, you know, the world today, in its materialism and its a lack of morality, uh, or even a false and corrupt morality, uh, tends to uh, diminish the idea that there are absolute goods, that there are absolute rights and wrongs, that there is a, a proper order of things. But the fact that we can find things amidst and be dissatisfied and to have problems with them 
bespeaks, even in their absence, it's kind of like the exception that proves the rule, uh, the, the, the brokenness that proves that there is a right way for something to be. The fixed state, if you will. You can't recognize something is broken if you don't have an idea that, that of its, in its health, and its construction, in its proper form. We don't have an idea of sin and disobedience and rebellion without also having immediately an idea of law and order and the right way of things. When Adam and Eve were set in the garden and told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they ate of it and they knew good from evil, the idea wasn't that God wanted them to be completely ignorant of good and evil but that he wanted to know good and evil from the position that God knows good and evil. From the position of the good and knowing what is amiss, what Adam and Eve did was they went in the path of evil, and so they, they knew it as we often know good and evil, by the absence of good. By what we are, by the corruption that we've given. And, and there is at least in that knowledge... The acknowledgement that there is a right way of things to be, a good, that there is a just, right standard uh, by which everything has been disordered and, and is not living up to it. And we see in this that Job is, through his affliction, Job in his prosperity, while he was a godly man, and had godly concerns, and recognized sin that was there, because he was a man that was a priest for his family. He, and he led his family in worship, and he led his family in sacrificial worship, which implies that they were very much aware of their sin, that Job's integrity didn't, uh, wasn't standing like the Pharisees on a self-righteousness, but a recognition that he was right with God through repentance, through humility, through faith. They recognized that things were amidst in the world, but what they experienced were the good things of the world. And so it was not a part of his daily meditation to wonder about the intricacies of God's providence and what he had in store uh, and this was also a man that didn't have revelation. Uh, if, if by tradition he predates Moses, so he doesn't even have uh, the the Bible in any form has not yet been written. Uh, that what he has at best is tradition, uh, and also his own intellect and holy reasoning and the grace that God gives there. And we see that this often is sufficient. He begins with man's condition, uh, that, that there is a burden there, there is, there is an error there, that man's days are few and they're troublesome. Man, is born of woman, man that is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continues not. It's here and it's gone. Now, this is the springtime. This is the time when the clover is... Is, is anticipating the grass, is running before it, and is quite lovely in its uh, flowering, its greenery, its flowers that come up. Uh, but it won't be very long before the grass and the weeds choke it out, and they disappear. 
and the grass will flower in its own sort of weed, and it will disappear. Not to mention the fact that it disappears when we mow it down, get rid of it. Man is like that. Uh, man uh, comes up, but, uh, but he has nothing to, to sustain him. And, and Job realizes that if, if man was going to stand in his own, uh, not just integrity, but his own righteousness and merit before God, that this is an unequal match. That he can't contend with God in God's judgmental phase. Dost thou open thy eyes on such a one and bringest me into judgment with thee? Will you make me on par with you so that we can work out what is our, my own desert? Uh, how could I stand? Verse 3. You've determined my days. Verse 5. And let me come to the end of my days and have some relief. Remember, it, it just his misery is taxing him so... He's feeling his uh, affliction not just as God's affliction upon him, but as signatures of God's wrath. And this is a man that knows that he is right with the Lord. And yet, God seems to be his enemy. What's more, he knows that he can't fix himself. Can that which is unclean make itself clean? Can you bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? No, you cannot. It's past his power. He uses a couple of, of similes here, or not similes, but metaphors. In verses 7 to 10, it's, Man is not like the stump in the ground. The tree, at least, shall live again. The tree is murdered, it's cut down, it's, uh, it's eradicated, and yet it will find when the waters come, remember this is a more arid climate, uh, when the waters come back, it will start to sprout. You know, one of the things we do when we cut down a tree, we burn out the tree stump. Because if you don't, we have what we have at the manse every so often, is a whole other little forest growing up out of it. They're, they're persistent things, trees are. Uh, and they come back. Now, is, is Job saying that the, it's the same tree? No, but there is there's this life that persists and continues in a way that is unlike mankind. Uh, from Job's experience. Now we will see that Job had a faith and hope, and he or at least the faith and hope in the resurrection will come to him through these trials. In chapter 19, we get one of the most explicit, not the only, but one of the most explicit uh, uh, details of the nature of the resurrection anywhere in Scripture. Uh, and he understands that there is something more after the grave, but... He doesn't understand what it is. And it's not like the life here. And he can't conceive of, because he knows full well what happens to the body. He knows of its degradation. He knows of its corruption. He knows of its decay. And he knows that his enjoyments of life go through the body. So what is in store for him? He is unsure. And that unsure brings anxiety. Uh, because at verse 11 and 12, and it says the waters fell from the sea. Remember the sea that is probably nearest to, uh, to Job that he's thinking is the Sea of Galilee, uh, where is the source of a river, not the, the end of the river. There's some rivers that flow into Galilee, but then most famously Jordan flows out of Galilee into the Dead Sea. Uh, and 
but but C can also be any source of uh, of reservoir, and and probably more than likely he's thinking of fountains and wells that when they drum dry, then the flood out of them, the streams that come forth out of them, the rivers that have their headwaters in them dry up too, and if there's nothing in the reservoir, there's nothing then in the stream, and man is like that. Once man is gone, he's gone. And, and, and where is he? He doesn't know. Uh, that there is a temporariness to his life, a vanity to it. It's passing. And it passes into he knows not what. And it passes into a, a life that, that probably doesn't have the same sort of concerns that this one does. We, this is one reason, by the way, the same sort of thing. When David lost his son by Bathsheba, he mourned him until he, uh, until he went, passed from him. But he recognized that David would go to this son. The son wouldn't come to him. There's a certain sense in which what David could do for that child ended when that child died. That's why, by the way, we don't invoke the saints that have gone before us. We certainly believe, because Scripture reveals, that those who die in the Lord Jesus Christ are praying for God's will to be done on earth. But it doesn't mean that they are made like unto God and could hear every concern of those on earth. That there is a separation between us until we are brought back together. And those are things we can speak of even vaguely now from a great deal more revelation than Job could in his time. What he does know is that in this short time that man has, man cannot stand against God's wrath. If God is going to be turned against him, there's nothing man can do. There's nowhere he can go. He's going to be consumed. Verses 16 through the end of the chapter now. 16 and 17 in your pew Bible is translated in a way that brings it more into line with what is in verses 13, 14, and 15. Uh, This has something to do with the ambiguity of the Hebrew poetry. Uh, But traditionally, and I think more universally, it is read as as a more negative statement. Uh, And and in that regard, uh, verse 16 Job is contrasting his hope that he expresses in verses 13 through 15 with what he's feeling now. For now thou numberest my steps, thou dost watch over my sin. As he's often complained before, God seems to be bringing him into a deeper interrogation. That he's, being, uh, that he's watching out almost like a prosecutor for a slip-up of the defendant. Uh, the, the whole reason why we have Miranda rights so that we don't incriminate ourselves. That, uh, that Job is feeling like he's being given the third degree in some form or fashion that God can, if he can't get him for the b- big crime, then maybe he can get him for the process crime, lying to the FBI, as it were, or whatever it might be, uh, that, that, that Job is confined by the Lord. And not only that, in verse 17, is his transgressions are being sealed up and held, not as a way and, 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 and to be cast away, but rather to be kept for when the time comes. That when the time comes, the Lord's going to bring out all these old sins. We've already seen this, this complaint and this worry, the way he felt like the sins of his youth were being brought back to him, chapter 13. 
That God seems to be holding him to a standard, not that may be unjust, but a standard that is, does not accord with his mercy and knowledge of Job's weakness. Does not accord with the grace that he hopes from him. And such will consume him as the mountains falling come to nothing, as the waters erode uh, powerfully the rocks and create the canyons and the rivers, and ultimately uh, mountain ranges go from the pointy high Alps or or Rockies to the low, wearing away Smokies, and, and then to the low hills, and then become nothing. This sort of idea that that man will be consumed under the, the power of God's wrath. That he is uh, not able to last. Uh, we see this in chapter 13, verse 25 through 28. Wilt thou break a leaf driven to and fro, and wilt thou pursue dry stubble? I mean, will you be so angry with the dead leaf that you'll make sure it's nothing at all? You write bitter things against me and make me possess the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet also into stocks and look narrowly into all my paths and set a print upon my heels. You pursue me to the last. And I am a rotten thing. I am consumed as a garment that is moth-eaten. When you get done with me, Lord, there won't be anything left. Is that what you want? And Job here is speaking out of the boldness of his Uh, confidence with the Lord. This is not disrespectful to the Lord, understand, because he's being honest. He's not holding back anything from the one source of, of his hope, the one source of his good. He's not going to flatter God. He's already rebuked Bildad for trying to flatter God. He's not going to uh, defend God. He's going to acknowledge that this comes from the Lord. And he's going to ask and plead out of his own faith in the Lord's goodness. Is this the right way to handle me? And he's laying it before the Lord. But this vanity also drives him to acknowledge his mercy. Again, the, the, the brokenness of the world or the things that are wrong with the world... Drive us to find what is right and what is the proper order of things. What is true. An idea that God is at enmity with me, even though I love Him and are seeking to Him and, 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 and repentant and trying to form my life and struggle. Rec- I recognize then that that can't be the only word of God to me. When I experience God's wrath but believe in his mercy and trust and are and trying with the integrity of my heart. I, I also see that my senses there are failing me and I have to rely, I have to ask myself, do I trust God or do I trust my, my, my perceptions in the world? And this is what Job does. Job sees God as his enemy. That's how he's experiencing God now. But he recognizes that uh, he's right with God. He is, that God is not, as already been said, God is too perfect to be unjust. God is too perfect to ever need to deceive his people. 
And so as he has experienced God's goodness to him, he knows God is good and merciful to him. Therefore, even though he can't see that mercy, he will trust that mercy. Because when it comes to a difference between your perceptions and your knowledge of what God himself has revealed unto you, it is God that ought to be trusted. This we see in 13. Oh, that thou wouldst hide me in the grave. Your translation probably says Sheol. Uh, grave is probably the best all-around translation of that word. Uh, you do understand Sheol is not a translation, by the way. It's just copying off words from the Hebrew, right, in transliterating it into English. It generally has, it's, it's a little bit more of a location than just the grave. Uh, it is where those who are dead are, without saying anything else about it. Uh, but grave is pretty good, and generally speaking, it's how it's translated into the New Testament. Oh, that thou wouldst hide me in the grave, and that thou wouldst keep me secret until thy wrath be passed. I recognize that this wrath against me is not all that you will say to me. So hold me until it passes, even if that means in the grave. And this is how his trial is leading him to a greater conception of God's mercy to him. That thou would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait until that change, my change, comes. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. I believe that this will be the case. I am calling now, and I am not hearing. But you will call to me, and I will answer you. I know this, because you will have a desire to the work of thy hands. So this is the expression of, of Job's hope. Now, if you take 16 and 17... Uh, as to be in the more positive, it continues on to those verses. But nevertheless, even what those verses say is contained, uh, positively at least, in these three. Uh, so there are two things that, that Job is looking at. He is confident that a change will come. He's confident in verse 14 that a change will come because the Lord is merciful. That that is how he relates primarily to him. And when he sees that 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 discontinuity, that distinction between the Lord's wrath and His mercy, he recognizes that one leads to the other. That one is but temporary until the other be fixed. Uh, this, by the way, is picked up by Paul. He turned to Romans 8. And Romans 8 is a wonderful chapter that deals with our perseverance in in the, the wickedness of the world and the trials of the world. And uh, one of the, the most notable verses from that is verse 28. Uh, God works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And what's striking about that point is that he says all things in the context of talking about the suffering of God's people. That it's in the midst of those all things are the afflictions of God's people. Those all things are the bad things. They're never going to be, they're nevertheless going to be good things because of what the Lord is doing. But he has to get there first. And the way he gets there is through various and sundry ways. But uh, most strikingly, we see uh, his comment about all of creation and all of the creatures in verses 18 through 25. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
that if we do suffer greatly, nevertheless, that just means more glory is coming. And he bases this, not just in this passage, but we see in others, he bases this in the experience and his knowledge of Christ himself. Christ was humbled for a season to be exalted with a name that is above every name. He was put on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he is set at the right hand of God the Father Almighty to be King of kings and Lord of lords. And therefore his people too, uh, when they bear the affliction, shall also bear the glory. That's what he says, 16, 17. He goes on, verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestations of the sons of God. All creation are bound up in the redemption of mankind. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. You know, we don't get punished willingly. We do the deed willingly. We're not punished willingly. But nevertheless, the Lord punished them by by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. That this destruction, this misery that we have is meant to drive us to a higher hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, that is, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why yet he, does he hope for it? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. There's a certain bit then the afflictions are are giving us uh, bigger and bigger expectations. C.S. Lewis once said, there are problems with prayers that not that we expect too much from God, but that we often don't pray because we expect so little from Him. Well, the afflictions of Job pushed Job to look higher and deeper and further even than death itself. And affliction to God's people sometimes does that for you and for me. That if we go through life on a cloud of ease, we will not, even if we are saved and redeemed and are part of God's elect and have recognized that we had to repent of sin, it would be sort of an intellectual thing in our heads and not be a reality. And therefore, the way we give praise to God and hope to Him will be sort of a, a formal, a stuttering thing instead of a deep felt commitment and appreciation for what He has done. And our hope might be for, and oftentimes you do see this, we see this even in our own hearts, we see this in our own iconography, we see this in our own tales that we tell, uh, but you also see this where the church and and the gospel is not as clearly proclaimed, this sort of saccharine life after death that is devoid of all desire and of anything of worth noting for, Uh, even that godless professor I had uh, in comparative religion who, who thought it was an awful thing to sit on a cloud and play a lute all throughout eternity. Well, the answer to that is the Bible doesn't present that as a picture of eternity. That's not the the great points, but when you lose sight of what God has done for you and what we owe Him, our, our view of what comes next becomes blander and blander and blander 
And therefore, we, we view the, the laying off of the body and taking on the Spirit as something that, that we fade from, as opposed to what Paul is saying, when we have the glorious liberty of Christ, when sufferings do their work, when we have what is eternal and no longer temporal, it is a, in Paul's language, a far greater weight of glory. It's heavier, it's more real. The, the picture in, in Scripture is that there will be a marriage of the heavens and the earth, the new heavens and the new earth, and they'll come down and be one, and it will be more real, not less real, than what we experience now. Paul gets his... Um, uh, analogy in his picture there from the very nature of the Hebrew word what means holiness or glory in, in Hebrew is related to their word weight gravity God is glorious, God is weighty, he has more substance, more being, more life than this fading passing troublesome days of mankind and we see it and because we see it, we have hope that, that that far greater weight is meant for us as well. The animals, whatever they perceive, apparently don't look uh, to the time after. They don't have, as uh, Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 10 and 11, uh, that they don't have the times in their heart, the world in their heart, eternity in their heart. Uh, they... they can't see, they don't care about what comes before and comes after, but mankind does. And that, that gives him a great deal more to, to worry about. The fact that we can conceive of and at least contemplate eternity is one of the arguments that, that we, there is an immortal soul, even without a direct revelation of Scripture. So there is something that will change. And Job is looking for it. It's a change in himself and a change in his circumstances. It's not just a change in his circumstances. Remember, one of the things that really weighs him down here or frustrates him is that he knows a clean, a clean unclean thing can't bring a clean thing out of it. In verse 4, uh, and yet there will be a change. Job is unsure of its nature. All he knows is that it must eventually be. This will lead him, if you look in um, Job 19, and we will, we'll, we'll go there for a second. He says in verse 4, 19, 25 through 27, I know that my Redeemer liveth. He's wanting a Redeemer. He is wanting a mediator. He doesn't really know, and, and he doesn't have quite the promises of the Messiah that will come, but he knows that there must be such. And that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, even after the worms eat me, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. It won't be some reincarnation or some other person. It won't be any of that. It will be me. Even though my reins, it is my kidneys, be consumed within me. That, that is the hope of the resurrection. That is that, you know, lots of people believed in life after death or in existence after death. But God reveals life 
bodily life even after death. And that's why it is a unique part of the Christian creed that I believe in the resurrection of the body. And we believe in the resurrection of the body because Christ went first in it. And he wasn't just, he didn't come back as a holy ghost. Despite what our, the English way of translating Holy Spirit uh, sometimes does. He came back as Christ in the flesh. And sits at the right hand of God the Father, eternal God and eternal man, as our mediator. Job gropes after this, but he knows it must be the case that there is a change that will make him clean, uh, that is ultimately won by our Savior himself. Look, and we get that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. One of our favorite um, uh, uh, funeral texts. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. They had already said in, in verse 44, there is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul and the last Adam was made a life-giving spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthy, the second man is from the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of Adam, the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly, that is Christ Jesus. And therefore, there shall be brought to pass uh, a moment and a twinkling of the eye at the last trump, this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality. And death will have lost its sting and grave will have lost its victory. And this, in the midst of its affliction, affliction Job sees and Job grows for and he finds. And he finds certainty in this reason. I mean, that's his hope. But what's his certainty? The certainty is that the Lord does work perfectly. The, the Lord's perfect work. He doesn't do things by halves. He doesn't start something and let it fall. It's part of our shame, our courage, that we begin projects and never bring them to completion. It shows that we sometimes don't have the means to. We sometimes don't have the ability to. We sometimes don't have the perseverance to. We sometimes don't have the resources to do. We sometimes don't have the knowledge to do it. But these are all weaknesses and shortcomings that we know, and these are not part of God. When God begins something, He finishes something. When God will do something, He will do it perfectly. And therefore, Job is confident that he will be remembered in mercy. Verse 13. And that the Lord will desire the work of His hands. But He didn't just create Job to let him wear away under His wrath. That He was merciful to him and He intended to be merciful. He doesn't leave things half done or undone. In Psalm 138, the last two verses, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, and thou, thou wilt revive me, thou wilt stretch forth thy hand against the wrath of my enemies, and thy right hand shall save me, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thy own hands. Our Paul says, to encourage the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will bring it to completion.
completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That if he starts something, he's going to finish it. And if he has started mercy in your heart, he will bring it to fruition. The Lord is not the God of memorials and, and lost causes and uh, nostalgia and the good old days. He is the God of the living. Luke chapter 20, verses 37 and 38. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees who did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living. For all live unto him. Sounds like a specious argument until we, until we mind what is being said in its fullness there. That God, uh, when He is kind, when He was bringing Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, yes, He intended to make a great nation and a blessing to all people. But He also expressed His love and tenderness and His friendliness to Abraham Himself. And though Abraham died a nomad... Yet Abraham looked to that promise of the Lord, that eternity with him, that satisfaction. So yes, affliction creates a holy dissatisfaction. But hope and faith and trust in God is satisfied in the Lord himself. Rest, stability, assurance, these are all fleeting things in the world. Sometimes we come close to them. Uh, one of the things that modern society is dealing with is that we had or we created the illusion at least of stable work environments in the mid part of the 20th century. You went to work at the age of 20, you retired at the age of 70 or a little bit before then, and you had the same job your entire life and you didn't have to worry. There's a constant progression. And now the young people come into a world that's not that way. And not only that, that you, you know, for most of human history... Sons went to the jobs of their fathers. Father, sons, father, sons, father, son. And there was a certain stability and expectation. And now uh, these jobs are evaporating. And we hear that. We feel that. It weighs heavily upon the heart. And it's that fleeting nature that makes us long for something stable. And worldly people will put it in the wrong place. Every time. Part of the way that tyrannies and, and totalitarian governments uh, come into power is that longing for stability, basically a longing of eternity before its conflict. And it partakes of the same vanity and ruination. So we have to find our world, our eternity, in Jesus Christ Himself. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 in a way that would have been a great comfort to Job and indeed expresses the comfort that Job found in his faith in the Lord. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, even when it's not pleasant, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Lord has given us that hope of eternity, that confidence that we will abide, 
that even were we brought to death, the Lord will be merciful and the Lord will make things right. But you and I are not people of this time only. But by His grace, we are people of eternity. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would give us hearts that recognizes the blessing and the good that you work even in this world, but longs for that perfect world that you will do in that new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. We ask that you would give us the grace to know where our good lies, that we would make Christ our pearl of great price and our heavenly treasure that cannot be taken away, and that we would live unto him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.